If you've had the opportunity to read through your announcement sheet, you may have noticed uh, Robin Flanagan of our congregation has been serving on our staff uh, as one of our admin assistants. She has uh, taken a job with the Dunlap School District. She'll be working at the Dunlap High School beginning in the fall. And so her last day on our staff, she's going from a part-time position to a full-time position, uh, will be July 9th. And we uh, want to celebrate her. And, and gosh, as you see her, please let her know that um, you're thinking of her and praying for her in this transition time. Uh, that being said, we uh, are praying that God would bring um, uh, the individuals who would step in as Karen Ring has retired and Robin is moving on to a, a new position that um, uh, God would fill out our, our staff team. And, and between now and then, that God would provide <laughs> in all kinds of uh, creative ways. Uh, we're so grateful for the ministry that Robin has um, had in, uh, as a member of our staff. We're so grateful for her. I would imagine you've heard of the game uh, two truths and a lie. You know, where everybody who's playing shares two truths about their life and then throws in a story that's a bit of a smudge. Um, it, it goes, and then you have to guess which one was the smudge. It goes kind of like this. So uh, I'll do them in order of, of life. When I graduated high school, uh, because of a connection that one of my uncles had, I got to have a backstage pass to a concert that Willie Nelson gave, and I got to meet him and shake his hand and shake the hands of the members of the band. And When my boys uh, were young and growing up, because of a connection, we took a, a trip to D.C., and the head speech writer for the president at the time uh, gave us a private tour of the West Wing of the White House. Um, and actually, this one occurred before that last one, but it's uh, when I was on a mission trip to South Africa, our little mission team from our church, uh, uh, just 10 nobodies, uh, we were invited to go and share in communion at Desmond Tutu's house and celebrate communion as he led just our little group uh, through that service. Um, so, which one would say it's number one, that uh, that's the smudge, the, the concert backstage passes? Which one, uh, how many of you would say that the, that the smudge is uh, the tour, the uh, private tour of, of the White House? Okay, a few more hands go up. Uh, how many of you would say that it was having communion in Desmond Tutu's house in South Africa? Just a few there. Well, the smudge is backstage passes. Uh, we... We, we, uh, we, we did get backstage, but we didn't have passes. We, uh, <laughs> a, after the concert, my cousin Carol, who uh, turned to her dad and said, can I have his autograph? And he just said, ask your cousin Bob. So we went to the stage, lift the curtain, crawled underneath, and met the band and met Willie Nelson. It was awesome. <laughs> Two truths and a lie. And you try to figure out. You hear stories, and you go, how can those all be true? How can those be true? What if you had two truths? And their very existence seem to indicate that one of them couldn't be true. That, that there, there's such a starkness in the contrast between them, these two truths that to hold them together at the same time seems to be undoable. Like, like it's just not right. How can those two things be true at the same time? We're going to happen to look at a situation this morning because of our text that will be in that situation. 
we'll, we'll confront two truths uh, that, are, that f- fit that description. Let's go ahead and read our text, though. If you would, please open up your Bibles to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, just before the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. We'll be looking at verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 5. Um, let's receive the Word of God this morning. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against those who swear falsely, against, uh, uh, against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. May God bless the reading of his word, and may God bless our time together as well. Here's truth number one. God loves. In fact, we're told in the Bible, God is love. God loves. God is love. We've mentioned it every week so far. We've been saying that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Malachi chapter 1 verse 2, God declares, I have loved you, says the Lord. It's wholly true. It's unassailable. Psalm 100 verse 5, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. It's not about a feeling. It's about a choice. God chooses to love at all times and never ceases to love. God loves. God is love, period. Nothing else we affirm today will change the absolute fact of God's love. Truth number two, God is holy. God is holy. There's this passage in the book of Isaiah at the beginning of chapter 6 where Isaiah represents to us the vision of his calling into ministry. And there's this throne, and above the throne are these uh, seraphim, these angelic creatures of some form. They have three sets of wings. With two wings, they cover their face. Two wings, they cover their feet. With two wings, they fly. And one of the seraphim calls out and says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God 
Almighty is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The glory of the Lord. God is holy. We've probably used this example before. Maybe your grandparent was of the same ilk, the same time period. But I know that when I went to go and see my grandmother Jordan at her house, there was the family room in which you could be comfortable. And then there was the living room in which you weren't. It was that place that seemed uncomfortable. It was called a living room, but to be in that living room meant that life was different. It was just set apart. This is a different kind of place. It's not casual. And when we think about God's holiness, it's something about him. It is who he is, and it's set apart, and it's different. And it can feel incredibly disturbing. He is completely pure. In fact, one commentator put it as transcendent purity. We're told that God is a refining fire. The reaction that occurred when the vision of the seraph uh, giving this statement about God's holiness it describes it like this. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And in the vision, there's this coming of the seraph to, with a hot coal to burn the lips, a refining fire. God is holy, transcendently pure. He's a consuming fire. And so we hold both these truths together. God is love, absolutely. God is holy, absolutely. Two truths, no lie. Neither one is ever compromised. And then we confront the messiness of this world. And we find ourselves facing the problem of spiritual contempt. Two truths and a problem. We all kind of may have an experience, more of an experiential knowledge of contempt than maybe a, 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 um, a dictionary definition of it. You know, whenever you hear that sound or you make that sound yourself, it goes something like this, that's contempt. <laughs> if someone says something, you go, or maybe it's an eye roll. You know, the eye roll that shows contempt. By the way, did you know that the eye roll actually was a, 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 a flirtatious act uh, up through to the time of the middle of last century? And then somehow it transitioned from uh, flirtation to contempt. And when our boys were growing up, Vic, Vicky had this rule that, that they were welcome to roll their eyes at her, but just not in front of her. 
So she'd come in, she'd say something to them, she'd lay down the law about something and, and tell them what's what, and, and then they had to stand there and they'd take it and they'd then walk away and she'd say, I know your eye, you're rolling your eyes, which is okay because I didn't see you, but we know that if you get a pfft in an eye roll, that's probably pretty strong contempt. In terms of what we find in Malachi, it's a f- an eye roll and hands go up in the air and go, unbelievable. Spiritual contempt against God. We find it in verse 17. We find that the people are saying to God and saying out loud, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. You see, they had returned to the promised land, those who were exiled, those that had remained in the area and were already there to greet them, and they thought the temple's rebuilt, and and surely the Messiah is going to be here, and God's going to provide for his people, and yet it seems as though the evildoers are winning, that life is going better for them than it is for those who are faithful. And so they had this spiritual contempt for God, God, you must delight in evil because those who do evil are winning. And they said things like, where is the God of justice? When we hold God in contempt, we question his wisdom, his promises, his power, his love, and his holiness. That's why in the text we read that this wearies God. The very creatures he created in his own image, the creatures he gave life to, now turn to him with contempt. Have you ever had an expectation of God that he did not fulfill? an expectation where you called out to him and and you prayed, you probably prayed consistently for this and everything in your brain said to you, if there is a God, a just God, a loving God, that God would answer this prayer this way in this time. And we can find ourselves going, throwing our hands up. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The text provides us God's answer to spiritual contempt. At least in the situation of Malachi, he says, I'm coming. I'm coming. He says, I'm going to send my messenger, and then the Lord will suddenly show up, appear at his temple. We might ask, is this something that we ought to celebrate? In verse 2 it says, But who can endure the day of his coming? He is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. Holy is God. Commentators describe how we want to be careful not to rush too quickly to the arrival of Jesus as the answer to this prophecy. One commentator described it as we might think more in terms of a, peri- of, of a pyramid in which God is constantly answering that prophecy, and then it comes to the point where Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy. 
that John the, the baptizer shows up as the messenger, and then Jesus is, is God incarnate, God in the flesh, and he comes, and he is the refiner's fire. He is the launderer's soap. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. There's a text in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel, chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. Here's John the baptizer. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus' first advent, his first coming. We find Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 25. We have Jesus describing in a story we've talked about before in this room. When he tells a story that when the Son of Man, a way that he referred to himself, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like a king that has all the nations gathered before him and the king divides the people uh, um, between the sheep and the goats. And he turns to the sheep and he says, hey, really well done. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. They go, when, when did we do these things for you? And he said, you know, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. Come on into my kingdom. But the same Jesus, this Jesus, the Son of Man, when he returns, will turn to the goats and those on his left, and he will say, listen, when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, you didn't take care of me. And they'll say, when didn't we take care of you? Whenever you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And he'll say to them, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. God is love. Absolutely. God is holy. Absolutely. There's a passage in 2 Thessalonians where Paul picks up on this as well. And in 2 Thessalonians... Um, uh, Paul describes it this way. He goes, When the Lord Jesus is revealed, again his second coming, from heaven with his mighty angels in the flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who can endure the day of his coming? He is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. The Malachi text gives us some things to be aware of, to pay attention. This God who is wholly loving and wholly holy. Some things to keep in mind. You see, sometimes spiritual contempt goes to the point to where we become apathetic about the faith. We hold God in contempt. We say, God, where is your justice? And we figure, you know, it's just not working out. Let me hedge my bets. Let me prioritize other things. I'll become apathetic in my faith. And in verse 5 of chapter 3, we are given a list of some things to pay attention to. We might let them stand in kind of uh, uh, the, a type a grouping that we can see each one through. And so in the list is um, 
that there is judgment coming toward sorcerers. It says, I will be swift witness against the sorcerers. One way to think of that is that this is religious sin. Sorcery was common at the time of Malachi, and, and, and this is turning to something that we ought not to turn to for answers and power. Instead of turning to God, we turn elsewhere for answers and power, whether it's other faiths or cult, cults or secular things. We're turning to other things for answers and power that alone should come from God. Something else to be aware of is uh, moral sin. If that's religious sin, we might think in a larger category, too, of moral sin. For God's word comes against adulterers and those who give false testimony. We might also think of social sin, things to be aware of in the holiness of God. For he will be a witness against the oppressors of hired workers. Those who oppress widows or the fatherless or the sojourners, the people from outside the country who are living in the country. Holy is the Lord. Religious sin, moral sin, social sin. Be aware of these things in light of the holiness of God. So where's the solution in all this? Well, I believe we can pick up on that word at the end of verse 5 in chapter 3, where it says, and those who do not fear me, says the Lord. That the solution it comes in fearing the Lord. Let's talk about that for just a few moments. What do we mean by fear? Fear the Lord. We've talked about it before, awe. Yes, awe. But sometimes we can be awed by a mountain. <laughs> that's just an awesome mountain, and we're, we're just held in awe by it. Wow, that's awe. Wow. But with God in his holiness... We might do well to also allow room for a bit of trepidation. Not panic, but some sense of trepidation. So let's, let's describe these kinds of fear that we might be able to take a look at here. First is fear as the right response. Fear as the right response. In this, I want us to take a look at Hebrews 10.31, if you're taking notes. Hebrews 10.31. It reads this, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Jesus helps us with this understanding in a text from Matthew's gospel, chapter 10. We read, and do not fear those who, kill the who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That there's this right kind of fear, that there's, there's this God who is completely holy, and we ought to have a sense of just how holy this God is, how pure and how different that is from our own brokenness and sinfulness and, and the way we carry ourselves in this world. There's a wrong kind of fear. Many places we could turn to, but we could turn to 1 Peter 3.14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
The wrong kind of fear is to be fearful of the, the things of this world. Because God is loving. Yes, God is holy, but God is loving, and God is the one we can turn to. And in this world, there will be tribulation, and there will be people who will hate us for our faith, will hate you for standing for Jesus Christ in this world. But don't fear them. There is a necessary kind of fear. Fear as necessary response. When you look at all the different passages on fearing the Lord in the Bible, there is a set of passages where they put fear of the Lord in parallel with being faithful to the Lord. So a definition, one of the definitions of fearing the Lord in the Bible is simply to be faithful, to observe His commandments in response to who He is as the God who loves and the God who is holy, that we would be faithful in response to Him. So we might look at a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Listen to the parallelism here. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today. The necessary kind of fear is to be faithful in response to his love and grace. In fact, it's picked up by Paul in the New Testament. We see it in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Paul's saying, listen, just live this out. Live out the calling you have in your life from God to join the Holy Spirit in your own process of becoming like Jesus. This is the fear of the Lord. There's an unnecessary kind of fear, a fear as the unnecessary response. So many times when God shows up to share something with his people, the first thing he, we, the people hear is fear not. When the angels show up to, to Mary and Joseph, fear not. When, when God's moving toward people and, and we get this wonderful picture of his love and his grace coming at us, it can be overwhelming in his presence. And he goes, fear not. In fact, we've had this description in 1 John, 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In the love of God, we are set right with God, and we need not fear punishment. All right, so let's say we want to cultivate this kind of fear in order to uh, forestall apathy, in order to keep spiritual contempt away. What if we wanted to develop this kind of fear? Three quick little things. The first is this. Let us know God as loving, and holy. Have you ever played the uh, game Battleship? You know, there's, if you play, you know, you've got your little screen, you've got the other person's screen, you can't see their sea, they can't see your sea, and you place your five ships, you place your aircraft uh, carrier, you play, uh, place your battleship, your cruiser, your submarine, and your destroyer. 
And, and when you play the game, you keep in mind that that other person has five ships and you're paying attention, where's the aircraft carrier? Because that has five uh, uh, holes in it for the, uh, the spikes to, to be put. And you're aware of it because it's on your radar. And when we go to Scripture and we listen to God's Word being proclaimed and we study the Bible together, for us to have on our radar that God isn't just love and grace and forgiveness, but that God is also holy. And we keep our eyes open, our ears open, because we want to know God as loving and as holy. Know God as loving and holy. The second thing is that we would worship God as loving and holy. We would worship God as loving and holy. That we come to worship, whether it's here corporately or individually, that we come to God as, and we worship Him as being both loving and holy. We don't just come to sing about how loving God is, but about how holy He is. And we submit and celebrate Him at the same time. And then we serve God as holy and loving. We serve God as loving and holy. We serve under the freedom of grace and the weight of his glory. Two truths that will never end. God is love. God is holy. If there is a lie that needs to come to an end, it would be this, that I can love the God of my choosing, my design, if we say, I just want to love the God who's loving, not the God who's holy, that's the lie. So let's not hold God in contempt. Let's surrender our expectations to his providence. And let's know God and worship God and serve God as the loving and holy God he is. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you are who you are and that you reveal yourself that we would know you to whatever extent that we have turned you into something less than you are, to whatever extent we have shown you spiritual contempt, to whatever extent that we have ignored your holiness and just sought after your love, would you forgive us? For those of us that feel the weight of your holiness every day and we struggle to experience your love, would you free our hearts and our minds to know that your love is trustworthy and true? God, we give you praise. It is good to be your people in this world. To you be all the glory. In Christ's name, amen.